Welcome back to the Mole Pigs podcast. Today our guest is Eric Poppleton, and also with me today are Anastasia. Hello. Boya. Hi. Georgios. Hello. And I'm Will. Eric got his Bachelor's of Science in Biology and Geology at Tufts University and is now working towards his PhD at ASU's Biodesign Institute, where he is advised by Petr Schultz and Hao Yan. Eric is interested in the use of computational modelling in the design of molecular machines, in the course of which he has been heavily involved in developing the OxDNA toolchain, such as OxDNA Web. Eric, hi. Hey, everybody. Um, so I think many of our listeners will will be familiar with OxDNA, and I'm sure we'll talk um, more about that throughout this podcast. But maybe you could start by telling us a little bit more about some of your other research. Yeah, so actually how this all got started is I joined the lab planning to do a project on RNA design with uh, Fei Zhang. But we found very quickly that our, like, our designs weren't behaving the way we expected them to, and we didn't have a good way to understand what they were doing. So that's kind of where we turned to OxDNA, and the goal was to take these designs that had, you know, kind of frustrated researchers for years and see if we could improve them and use simulations to rationally guide our design. So I do some of this like RNA work, obviously since the pandemic, um, since I'm kind of the easiest person in the lab to go home and work completely remotely, I haven't touched this in almost a year at this point. I've been doing just simulation stuff. Um, so that was where it all started. Um, and then I also have a number of like collaborations with other groups as well as people in Howie Yan's lab where they come to me with a design and I'll run the simulations, analyze the simulations and say, well, I think your design's not working because this region right here is not stable. This region right here is, you think it's flat, but it's actually like all curled up. Um, and then on top of that, I also do some research into RNA folding technologies. So we, we have a recent bioarchive paper out um, about using the rollout reinforcement learning method, or sorry, the rollout dynamic programming method with a reinforcement learning expert to try to predict RNA structures. So we're, our goal is really to bring all kinds of computational tools into the DNA and especially RNA design side, because we kind of just assume that RNA can be designed like DNA, but it's close, but it's a little different. So we're, we're doing a lot of work on RNA right now. So is something combining the DNA and RNA design and the works for you, or are you keeping the two separate at this point? So just because of the limitations of like the basic biophysics, we don't really have a good way to combine DNA and RNA. Um, there have been a few experimental groups that have done DNA-RNA hybrid structures, and obviously there are a number of like RNA, like siRNA delivery platforms that use DNA. Um, but as far as the simulations go, we don't have a way to stimulate a DNA-RNA duplex without resorting to fully atomistic models, which are um, far more computationally intensive than we can really use at the scale of nanotechnology. And so just to like say why that is. So the way the way OxDNA was parameterized is there's all there's this great resource or great history of like DNA literature that's like how much does DNA stretch when you pull on it? What are the kinetics of a DNA strand displacement? Um, what uh, are wh what guides the formation of plectinemes in DNA? And we have most of the same results. It's a little bit less for R for just pure RNA. And so we have these two data sets, but we don't have that much data on how does a DNA-RNA duplex behave? We know it's A-form. Um, we kind of know it's strand displacement kinetics, but we it's, it's still very nebulous. And so we don't have a way to parameterize a model that is um, coarse-grained enough for nanotechnology to use, but is also um, like accurate enough for us to use. So we're, we're really like hamstrung by the lack of basic biophysics on DNA-RNA hybrid models. Um, so I see that part of your bachelor's degree involved geology. Now, I think I've been a bit remiss in my own research in not considering the geological implications of molecular programming. Um, so maybe you could explain a bit how geology fits into this story. So I'll say right now, it really doesn't. One day, maybe I'll find some way to like bring the two back together. Um, what I actually really wanted to do when I was like starting out with science is I, want, I really like geology, I really like biology, and I wanted to bring the two together. And so I was originally, I originally came to the ASU to actually study soil science, um, but my program had me doing rotations. And so after I finished my rotation in a soil science lab, I was kind of like, oh, I need to find somebody else to do research with. Why not do something completely different? And I kind of cold emailed Hao Yan and asked if I could do a rotation in his lab. But I thought it was so cool that I just stuck with this and have not touched soil 
since my first semester here. So maybe one day I'll find some way to make like a DNA sensor that is uh, relevant for some sort of like soil microbiome because soil microbiomes are really cool and something that is like kind of a very like dynamic and interesting area of research right now is how do we like understand and leverage our bioinformatics tools to understand like healthy soils and remediate contaminated soils. So like that was an entire other part of my life that is not super relevant right now, but like maybe one day. Yeah, I could definitely see them coming together. I mean, there's, yeah, as you say, so much in, in the sequencing biomes of, of soil. I, I guess that kind of maybe on, answers this question a bit, but which would you say came first for you, the software engineering side or, or lab work? Um, did you learn to code after you'd kind of done lab stuff or was it the other way around? Um, so it was definitely the other way around. Um, ever since I was like a little kid, I was like, I'm going to be a biologist. Like that was always what I was going to do. Um, but my parents are all computer scientists and their, their thing to me was when you go to college, you know, go do your science, but you have to take at least one coding class. Um, so while I was at Tufts, I took, you know, comp 11, the intro comp sci class, uh, you know, one semester and it, you know, it's a good way to think about things. It's very helpful because you'll often run into software as you're doing lab work. Um, but then it like, wasn't super relevant. I finished out my degree and I came here and when I like met with Hao Yan the first time, it happened to be the same day that Peter was signing his paperwork to get hired at ASU. So he was like in the office, like signing his paperwork. And he asked me like offhand if I know how to code. And I said, well, I've taken like a little bit of comp sci and you know, he's looking for students and I'm looking for projects. So that's like how this whole collaboration started and I ended up working for him is because I was somebody with like the biology and chemistry knowledge, but I also, I knew just enough code to get my foot in the door there. So I really started like planning to be mostly wet lab, um, doing these RNA designs and like I would do simulations on the side and try to use that to influence my wet lab work. But it's really like flipped entirely on its head, especially because of the pandemic. And now, um, as many of you have probably seen our work with like oxygen.dna.org and the, uh, the, we've got some work going on in like databases. And so now I'm like totally computer science um, without really much formal training. I had to learn it all myself, but there's enough good resources out there that like computer science is learnable on your own, unlike, you know, something like chemistry, where that'd be a lot harder. Yes, I guess that was a big, big surprise, probably, if you were looking into the future a few years ago and, and seeing where you are now. Um, how much did, did you feel prepared for, for what you're currently doing now? Like you said, you needed to learn a lot um, yourself. What, what was the journey like of getting so involved in all this um, coding? Um, it's really funny. I actually recently had to go through and find some old script that I wrote and I found my very first script and it's, and this is, this is in Python. My, my first coding class was in C++. So I had to learn a whole new language from scratch. And it's really funny to go back to my early stuff because a lot of my early code is written in R and bash because I had done R as part of, you know, like biostats. Um, so it was what I was familiar with and what I was comfortable with. But I quickly like picked up like Python is really the place to be for a lot of like scientific data processing. Um, let's see, you asked me what that experience is like. It was definitely a like week to week. I'd look at my code I wrote the last week and say, this is garbage and then have to like rewrite it. And so there, there was a lot of like writing and rewriting. And I'm really thankful that Peter was like a very like understanding, like you're learning this, um, you're, you're going to get better at it. And I'm also really happy that kind of my first project was the OxDNA analysis tools. Um, and th those were born because as I was doing the simulations for the RNA structures, I didn't know what to do with the simulation data. And there's not a ton like built around OxDNA. So um, instead, I kind of took the, uh, the the basic toolkit that you'd find in Gromax, for example, and I implemented it all in Python and like made it for Oxygen. So I was implementing known algorithms. So I wasn't, you know, trying to develop something novel and new and really difficult. But at the same time, it was a great way to like learn coding best practices. And also because it was being used every day, it's not bad for me to like, it's not like wasting my time to go back and like fix something up and make it better because me and the rest of the lab and now people all over the world are using these tools. So every time I make an improvement to it, you know, I'm not going to get like, uh, oh, why are you not spending time on your current research? Because 
what this stuff is like so key to what everybody else does that it's you know kind of considered like foundational to the lab yeah i guess having that um kind of constant code review from people around you must be a big help in quickly getting up to speed yeah i gotta say like if it wasn't for misha matthews who came as a visiting student to our lab for three months i would have gotten nowhere he came in and like looked at my code and was like oh you need to do this this and this and i helped him fix all of his code and that that made everything work uh, nice do you have any examples um, or, or anecdotes that you're willing to share about kind of the level of of code like back in the beginning i remember looking back when i was learning to code quite a few years ago that um i went through a phase where i kind of did code golf for some reason and just like had no white space at all in anywhere and i i don't even know why i was doing that but it was kind of heavy math code as well so it's just completely indecipherable Oh, I'm sure that was fun to dig up a couple of years later. Um, I actually found one recently. Uh, I'm trying to remember what the question was. Oh, so we were looking at VMMC simulations, which are uh, basically a way to study small systems and especially transitions um, between different states in a system that are hard to sample just using molecular dynamics. What you do is you run a Monte Carlo simulation and you put biases towards certain states. Anyway, so this is, it's kind of a difficult process to set up in OxDNA, and there's, there's a lot of moving parts to it. And uh, we recently came across a project where we really needed to do some of this. And so I went back and looked at my old code to do this, and I realized it's it's all in Bash, not in Python. <laughs> and I'm looking through this, and it's just like these indecipherable walls of like aux statements. And now I look at this and I'm like, I could have done this in Python and it would be readable. It, it worked in Bash. And that must have taken me like days to figure out all the different like nitty gritties of how all the different programs that you call in Bash. So you, you, you call awk and you call sed and you call um, head and tail and they all have different syntax and they all have their own idiosyncrasies involving white space. And so this must have taken me forever. And now I look at that and say, I could code this up in 10 minutes in Python. What was I thinking? <laughs> I think it's quite impressive, though, that you got all that done in just pure bash. Where do you find your passions are lying? So like, clearly you apply a lot of software engineering principles to your work in molecular programming. But I guess, do you find that the like you do you find joy in your work more from kind of writing software, like writing elegant code, having a good time? Or are you also like, would you say the majority of like, or would you say it's just a vessel for you to like do your actual research as in like, I guess my question is, where do you see yourself mainly in the future, software engineering or raw science? So it definitely started as a vessel for my research, but over time I've gotten much more into the like coding. And my, my favorite job these days is when I get to go back and work on Oxview, our, our visualization tool. And that's just, it's really fun because everything you do has this like visual output of like, you can now see things changing on the screen. We've got, you know, these 3D visual, visuals for it. And so every time you like improve something or you add a new button to it, it just feels really good. So I would say that at this point, I'm kind of more like the scientific software guy. I'd really like to get back into doing more like science and chemistry. I kind of miss it. My, my pipetting finger is getting, getting itchy. But I definitely say that at this point, my strengths are more in that I am I am the software guy more than I am, you know, a great laboratory worker. Yeah, I feel like the scientific community definitely owes like a huge debt to the like the people who write the software that other people can then just use a map, like just point and click and use. Uh, but yeah, like I, I was just wondering, you said that when you first started, like your first course was in C++ and now you do a lot of stuff in Python. So it sounds like you do a lot of, like, if you do a lot of like, um, numerical computation, a lot of simulations. Are you always using Python or do you go back to C++ for speed? Or maybe have you considered, I don't know, kind of newer programming languages like Julia, which kind of give you the kind of semantic, the syntax of Python with the speed of C++? So um, the core simulation engine for OxyDNA, that's C++ and CUDA. So anytime I want to implement something in OxyDNA itself, it has to be in C++ or in CUDA. Um, we use Python for the analytics just because 
that's kind of where we started. We already have like a library of readers and writers for it. Um, and also like Python just has so many tools for data analysis already built into it. We've, we've often talked about switching to Julia um, just because as you said, it's faster, it's similar to Python, but it's faster. But also like Python's libraries are just so much bigger and everybody already has experience with Python. So part, part of the nice thing about working with Python is I can put my code out there and say, if you want to like analyze your own Oxygen simulation, you can just import the reader functions from mine and then write your own code that like uses the output from the reader. Um, but the thing about Python is a lot of people know it. I, I have never met anybody else who uses Julia. <laughs> so <laughs> but Python's just good for portability. Yes, okay, fair enough. Today you've met your first Julia programmer. <laughs> I met your first. <laughs> um, so we've been talking um, about OxDNA and OxRNA, but um, it, it might be good to kind of explain it now. So how would you briefly describe what OxDNA, OxRNA are and, and how they work? Mm -hmm. So I, I guess the first thing is like the... This, the semantic thing. So OxDNA is both the model and the simulation engine. Um, and then OxRNA is a, another model like the OxDNA model. And so the OxDNA simulation engine, like I said, it's this wall of C++ code and CUDA code that implements molecular dynamic simulations. So molecular dynamics is you solve Newton's laws of motions for a like group of particles and then look at how they interact and how they evolve over time. And so what OxDNA and what OxRNA are, are they're what we call force fields. And so they're basically definitions of how particles interact with one another. And so the basic part of OxDNA and OxRNA is that every nucleotide is, in, is represented as a single rigid body. And these single rigid bodies have a number of interactions with other nucleotide particles. So they can hydrogen bond, they can stack, uh, they can cross stack, they have backbone connections. Um, and they can stack across helices. And so as we talked about earlier, you know, the, the like strengths of these interactions comes from those biophysical models. So OxDNA is what we call an empirically parameterized model, which is to say we know what the persistence length of DNA is. We know um, lo lots of, we know it's like kinetic strand displacement rates. We know a lot of physical parameters of it. So what the, um, the potentials between the interactions is parameterized to reproduce the physical models that we know about. So the the cool thing about OxDNA is that it just has this like set of um, potentials between the beads, and then from the like strengths of those potentials, what you end up with is DNA model prop like DNA properties as emergent properties of the model. Um, and it's it's pretty accurate too. It's it's quite impressive how much you can get there. And so the reason why you have to do this coarse graining is because uh, molecular simulations of things at the nanotech scale are just not doable at the fully animistic level. So you have to sacrifice some level of accuracy in order to get out the like time scales and the size scales that you need to be analyzing in order to get a good um, like a good understanding of what your system is doing. So something I see a lot when I read nanotech papers is people will run a fully animistic model of their structure and then they'll say like, oh, here was our mean structure, here was like the fluctuation we observed. And then you compare that with like the cryomap or with the OxDNA model of it. And you'll say, I think you guys didn't fully sample your system. So that's something I see a lot is people try to run fully animistic models and say, well, well it runs, but they didn't actually sample like even, you know, one iteration of like a long time scale fluctuation in their system. So this is why the core screen is important is because you lose some accuracy, but you do get much longer time scales than you do with uh, the more like accurate models. And so the problem with Oxygen obviously is that it can only represent things that are in those potentials. So it can only show like duplex DNA it can't show, for example, Hoogstein-based pairs. It can't show G-quadruplexes. Um, magnesium can't be represented because magnesium has a very site-specific interaction with it. So the backbone has to just be like this uh, kind of generic salt screening where you lose some backbone charge depending on your salt concentration. 
but it doesn't have, you know, magnesium ions binding at junctions, and that modifies the, like, preferred angle between things. So they're, like, the very, like, specific atomistic accuracy things that you lose, but in terms of, like, broadly representing how especially a, like, nanostructure is going to behave that was designed to have um, mostly Watson-Crick base pairs, you're going to get very good representation out of oxygen using that at like a much faster and like longer time scale than you would get from a full animistic model. Uh, I guess it's quite well road tested as well. So, you know, if you're mm-hmm. building your own atomistic model from scratch, then it might, it might run, but you know, how, how do you know without then comparing to experiment and doing a lot mm-hmm. of stuff to that it's actually doing the right thing. Whereas, um, yeah, oxygen is used so much. Mm-hmm. One, one interesting recent thing is that there was a recent paper introducing um, Snoopy, which is a uh, finite element analysis model um, out of the Kim lab from the University of Seoul. And the one thing that they did as part of that paper is they took Hendrik Dietz's um, cryo maps and they compared their, uh, their tool, they compared oxygenated, they compared uh, Mr. DNA, they compared fully atomistic simulations, and they compared CANDU. And so what they saw is that their model in Oxygen and Mr. DNA were actually closer to the uh, cryo map than the fully animistic model. And that that's obviously an example where their their structures weren't quite well enough sampled in the fully animistic model, but they got better sampling in the more simplified models. That's really cool. I wonder like, you know, to to include kind of more more detail would would probably be impractical, but can you add um kind of small bits where you simulate to a greater degree like is there any scope that now or in the future you could kind of have an aptima on on the end of a more traditionally understood um nanostructure so we're we're kind of taking the first steps towards that although we're actually going the other direction making things more coarse right now so there was a recent paper um that came out of our lab the lead author is uh, jonah prosik where we looked at the like proteins folded in an anisotropic network model and then introduced those to the oxygen model and we, we bind them to the dna just with springs and then anisotropic network models are kind of a way to take a crystal structure of a protein and then turn it into something that is dynamic and has the same fluctuations observed from the crystal experiments uh so we, we've we've implemented that recently in oxygen and there's some other um models we're currently working on that use that same idea to like better understand various nanotech aspects. Um, so we're definitely going backwards and um, are going, going like higher coarse grain to get um, kind of more things into the model. But I don't see any reason why you can't go down as well and have something that's finer. Now, the one thing about OxDNA that um, makes them like fully atomistic hard is that OxDNA is all pairwise potentials. And a lot of things in full animistic models have these like highly multi-body interactions um, that the oxygen simulation engine currently can't do. That would be like a pretty intense upgrade to the engine itself to be able to handle some of those um, multi-body potentials. Yeah, so there's no chance at all of fitting in even quantum stuff beyond that. I, I guess. <laughs> oh, de- definitely not, because that, again, that's like the very multi-body. So you'd, you'd have to write a whole new simulation engine. So if you want to do it, code is all open source go for it <laughs> is it easy to make it interact with another engine i'm not i haven't seen anything that i think the closest thing there is so oxygena is implemented in lamps um and so there's a little bit of like tension in the oxygena community between the uh the gpu group and the lamps group and so the people who use lamps really like it because there's lots of stuff that lamps implements that just because it's implemented in lamps and oxygena is a force field within lamps you can use their outside tools. However, even when you have 128 CPUs, it's still slower than running OxygenA on one GPU. So you can get a little bit more powerful, like you can get a little bit more powerful simulation or more powerful tools, but you just lose a lot of simulation data by switching over to like the CPU version. Now I've heard rumors that they're working on like a GPU version of LAMPS, so like Maybe we're about to get blown out of the water, but we'll see. We, we also have a uh, new version of the GPU code, which also has Python bindings. So it's going to go back to like the, why are we using Python? But we, we do have this new version of the code, which will be in the show notes for this podcast, I think, um, that has Python bindings. So you can directly interact with the simulation while it's running um, and then run like your analysis code on like a running simulation 
and it, it's pretty cool. We have recently implemented replica exchange molecular dynamics using that, which is something that Oxygen didn't have before because there was no way to like grab and interact with the simulation while it was running until we made this model. But um, that's all thanks to uh, Lorenzo Rovigati, who's one of the original Oxygen architects, and he's still like the person who does the most work on the simulation code itself. Um, and it's just been doing an amazing job bringing it into like the modern era. He also updated the C++ version because we were uh, not compatible with old with new compilers anymore, but we're, we're fixed. Yeah, that's super exciting to hear. Uh, yeah, like Replica Exchange sounds like an awesome addition uh, to see as well. So I was just curious, like whenever you're developing like tools for OxDNA or just messing around yourself, do you have any like go-to nanostructures? Like what's your favorite nanostructure to play around with and simulate? Um, the ones that I always use are these wireframe nanostructures. Um, it was that science paper from, I want to say, 2017. That ha It was a collaboration between Hao Yan and Mark Bahi's group. I can't remember the name of the first author. Anyway, so it, it's that paper. I have all the designs because um, there was a project that didn't go anywhere with using them for some medical application. And we ran some simulations as part of that. So I just have all these... Uh, like big wireframe designs. So those are often what I test on because the wireframes are a little more flexible, so they're a little bit more interesting. Um, is there any other ones that we often use? So like I said, M Misha Matthews in our labs, he had that paper on triangulated truss wire structure, wireframe structures. He always uses those to test anything because um, they're kind of his, his favorite structure. And then um, we also just holiday junctions. We, we have a very like large library of holiday junction simulations that are good to test any sort of analysis on because they're very well sampled because it's so small so you can like sample a huge amount of stuff and they're pretty flexible so you can see some interesting behavior. I haven't used OxDNA before. I'm wondering um, how large the system can be and how long does it take to run the simulation? So how long your simulation takes depends entirely on your hardware. Um, so if you're running on like the fanciest, newest NVIDIA scientific cards, you can run a billion steps of a full-size origami, so between like 10 and 15,000 nucleotides, in probably one and a half to two days. Um, most of our stuff is on NVIDIA 1080 uh, gaming GPUs, which take about five days, but they're also really cheap. Um, the the time scales, uh, the like time it takes to run a simulation scales roughly linearly with simulation size once you're above a certain threshold where like GPUs make sense, which is around like 300 nucleotides. So at that point, it's it's pretty linear. Um, our largest simulation we've ever run was I believe it was 1.6 million particles. Um, that required some like special hardware and like some hacking of the code to get the output format to not crash the computer as it was running. But it did work. Um, we saw some interesting things from the simulation. Hopefully, we'll get to publish that soon. But that is still a very ongoing project. Where do you see the role of machine learning fitting in with like being able to start simulating uh, dynamic, like dynamic DNA DNA systems? Um, like obviously, with the news of AlphaFold two recently, um, kind of blowing the whole protein folding problem out of the water and making people question whether or not kind of traditional things like, you know, folding at home are even um, worth running anymore. Like, do you see something similar on the distant horizon for OxDNA? So it'd be very distant just because there's a whole lot more data on proteins than there is on DNA. Um, the other thing about DNA is that it's a lot more flexible. Um, and protein, the protein, like, structure prediction it works really well when you have like a well-defined protein um so i will say that probably one day the machine learning will you know just start winning but also machine learning is not going to do well on anything novel so if us in the nanotechnology field are really focused on making like strange new designs that are like never seen in nature you can't really get a machine learning algorithm to do that um just because they're based on looking at things that have been done in the past and they, they learn patterns. Um, I was recently working with some RNA folding software and I ran spot RNA, which is a relatively recent machine learning algorithm for predicting RNA structure. And on my um, testing data set, it did really well on tRNAs. Like it has learned the tRNA structure and every time it sees something of like that size and has you know a couple of those stems, it's like, that is a tRNA, I'm gonna fold it into that clover leaf. 
but um, every time you gave it something weird like an SRP, it didn't work very well. Um, and so sometimes like the the, phys the more physics-based models were outperforming, the like further you get away from something that is very like common. So obviously things are going to improve with time as we get more data. Um, RNA is like criminally understudied as far as like structures go. We don't really have enough structures to train something like AlphaFold for RNA. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure how DNA would do. I've never seen anybody try to like machine learn a DNA structure. I, that'd actually be kind of interesting. So I think your enthusiasm for uh, for OxyNA and, and um, coding really comes across. So I wonder how how this compares to to wet lab. Which would you say you enjoy more? Um, it, it goes back and forth depending on which one's more frustrating at the moment. <laughs> You know, kind of whichever one is working better is my favorite at any given time. Uh, I will say I like being able to do both. Like having the mix, you know, all my experiments are not working. I'm going to go code some cool visualization is like a nice break. And then nothing is working in my like code. I'm going to go pipette a whole bunch of stuff. It also like gets you away from the computer and like, you know, moving around. You often like think of your problems while you're doing a wet lab. So it... It definitely helps to be able to do both, although it also means that like you don't you're not like focused on either one. What do you think the frequency of frustration both of those are, which ends up more challenging? Wet lab is way more frustrating. <laughs> are there any parallels between the two? Like are there any kind of lessons you learn in coding that can transfer to wet lab or vice versa? Hmm. I would say, I mean, I guess like the debugging stuff, like your thing isn't working. And so you will take similar steps of like going back and like stepping through it step by step and then like making sure that you get the output you expect at every given step. Obviously, it's a lot easier with coding. You can just put a print statement in, whereas in wet lab, you have to figure out some assay to test whether or not your structure was working at step three of 13 and you're sitting there like wondering where where it was going wrong because there are often in wet lab there are so many steps and at any given step you got to figure out what what's broken what um was the biggest difference for you when you transitioned from undergrad to grad school um let's see biggest difference I mean, so in terms of research, it didn't actually feel that different. I, I had kind of a weird undergrad research experience. I was a professor's like last student, and all of her graduate students had graduated. So I kind of got to take over the graduate student like office, and I had my own bench because I was the only person in the lab. So in terms of like research, it didn't feel very different. Um, but in terms, especially in terms of like social life, like social life, the experience is very different between undergrad and grad school. Um, grad school there's it's kind of a lot more how to say like people people have a lot more of like their own lives everybody's not just kind of revolving around the university so it's been very interesting to like move to a new place especially arizona where um people really have their own thing going on so it can be a little bit hard to make friends but it's also like when you do like you're, you're not just bound to the the lab anymore um and what else can i say about it I definitely say that not having class, not having as many classes just gives you so much more time to do research. So you make so much more progress than you did as an undergrad. Like you spend a lot of time in class when you're an undergrad and a lot of time doing homework that kind of hamstrings your ability to do like a lot of hardcore research because a lot of, especially experimental things take a lot of time. And, and on the social front, do you have any approaches you've been taking during the last year for, for trying to maintain that? Um, I actually got super lucky over the last year. Um, I had some friends who needed roommates. And so we like all moved into this house actually far away from campus for me, but it doesn't matter because I work from home. Um, and then we had like this great little pod. Um, I will say as far as like maintaining lab culture, we occasionally do like lab meetings where we all get lunch like paid for by the lab. And then like we like have a social hour instead of like lab meeting time and that definitely helps like keep people you know attached and invested and motivated um I, I will say there's definitely zoom fatigue for me like i don't go to anywhere near as many like zoom social events as i used to 
I remember at, at the start of the pandemic, it was like Zoom game nights and, you know, Zoom talks and like all kinds of things like that. And now I just kind of don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely the same for me. I used to have like quizzes every week and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, it just dies down. But hopefully we're on the horizon of some good things soon. Yeah, hopefully we're close. A lot of people in the lab are getting vaccinated over here, so. Yeah, and thanks for showing up here. That's on, we're on Zoom, and yet you, you came. <laughs> I didn't say there's been none, but <laughs> definitely fewer. And this, this, is, this is very new and exciting, and I really like your guys' podcast, so I was really excited when you guys reached out. But if we kept inviting you week after week, you might get a bit fatigued of this one as well. <laughs> yeah, probably eventually. Um. What kind of challenges have you experienced when building software that integrates with other software? So like Oxview and OxDNA.org, have you had to make a lot of upstream contributions in order to get everything to work well together? So most of our published stuff, that's all stuff that either we built from scratch. Um, oh, one thing that happens a lot is, especially older code that came from like the original OxDNA deployment, it's all in Python 2. Python 2 is out of support, had to update Python 3. Um, and just in like compiling code to compare against like older implementations of things, I have often had to like go into their code and fix things up because it doesn't work with a modern compiler or with a modern um, modern uh, what's I'm looking for operating system. Uh, anything else that is it, it's just a lot of like I'll be digging around and say okay I got to use this compiler and if I go in and change this line of the code it starts working again. Um, one of the most frustrating ones is we we were trying to compile Contrafold, which is an RNA folding software that first came out in 2006. And our, my collaborator came to me and was just like, I cannot get this thing to work. And it's supposed to be like one of the best RNA folding tools. So we really need to benchmark against it. And so I'm sitting there trying to make it work. And every time I like try to compile, it spits out some error. And so I, I started going into the code and just changing lines. It turns out that C++ has moved some libraries around. So like, all the functionality was still there. It was just in different places. We had to rename a bunch of the, the libraries and then it worked. But it's one of those things where like scientific software can be hard because there's not a ton of incentive to keep it updated. Because once the paper's out, like you need to be working on other papers. So this is something that I'm really trying to avoid with um, OxView and OxDNA analysis tools is I'm trying to keep this updated. Obviously it's like pretty new, so I don't run into that many problems yet. But like, I really want to keep it on top of things because I'm very frustrated with finding software that just doesn't work with current systems. Oh, the other, the other bad one is uh, Tiamat, the DNA design software that everybody in the YAN lab uses. It's a, it was a Windows XP program and it still opens on Windows 10, but it crashes if you have a structure over like 3000 nucleotides, but it still works on Linux if you run Wine. So what's ended up happening is they're all making their designs and then they send their files to people in our group because we're all running Linux to actually export the file into OxDNA because they can't do it. Maybe they need to run Wine on WSL on their Windows. <laughs> Let's get a tower of emulators. So Misha got that working. It was a mess, but he did get it working. It took him like two days. <laughs> How much time do you think you've spent like as a proportion on just getting stuff to work rather than the actual kind of coding? Getting stuff to work is, there are some days where it's a like an entire week is lost because, oh, the, the other bad one is um, NVIDIA drivers on Linux. Um, if you're running OxDNA on a local workstation, getting your video drivers to work it's not uncommon you'll walk into like the office where all of Peter's students are and somebody just has like a black screen with, you know, white text on it. And you just look at me and say, NVIDIA drivers? And they start crying. <laughs> not actually, but it's close. It, it's such a pain. But I feel like, oh, I feel like maybe it's a bit off topic, but I feel like NVIDIA drivers have come a long way. On they Linux. really have. Um, especially on kind of the more, I should quote, user-friendly distributions like mm -hmm. uh, Ubuntu and Manjaro. But like still, I... I, I know what you mean. Um, but presumably, as you said, a lot of the internals are written in CUDA. So uh, AMD users have no way of running these simulations. There's no OpenCL implementations. I do not believe so. I believe it is just CUDA. So you have to be using NVIDIA graf graphics cards. We're, we're waiting for those 3080s to like become widely available because they, they look so fast. Really excited for that. That's going to be like a whole new level of simulation. 
Yeah, I was also just wondering, like, you're, you're putting in so much time and maintaining the, the code and the tools so everyone can use it. Are there plans going forward? Because presumably you will graduate at some point. Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure what's going to happen there. I have been very aggressive in creating a like lab wiki for the group so that people understand like how things were coded. And like if you want to make a change to this code, here are like the things you need to look at. Um, I try to make sure that everything I write is super well commented because I know that most of my code is going to end up being like legacy code that everybody uses. So um, yeah, this has, been, this has been a big thing for me is just making sure that I put comments on everything. If, if you're writing like a software that's going to be used for one project, go ahead and don't comment it. But if you're writing software that's going to be used like for years after you graduate, comment everything. Like explain why you will use this function. Explain like if this is broken, go look over here. So you don't take the right once approach to coding. No, and I've I found that like especially because I don't have you know that software engineering background where I kind of know best practices. I'll write something, realize later, oh, there's a much better way to do it. Go back, write it again. It'll be way better, way faster. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of rewriting to the code because it's it's still a learning process to learn what I'm doing. But I would say that like especially OxDNA analysis tools is so much better than its first its first iteration. Oxview couldn't even load in DNA origami at first because we were using like the wrong the wrong way to make objects in the um, WebGL. So like things change over time and things are just orders of magnitude better than they were in their first iteration. Do you feel like you're now so attached to this project that wherever you go from now on you'll probably always be kind of high up on the contributor list for, for this. Yeah, I think that's kind of what's happened here. Um, I've definitely noticed that with the people who originally wrote OxDNA. So the people from John Doyen Ard Lewis's group who originally wrote the codes, so that's Peter and Lorenzo and Flavio and um, Tom. Yes, like especially that that group, they are still very active on like the SourceForge boards answering people's questions. They're still contributing to the code base. Um, so there's there's still lots of work going on on the code, even though it was published, you know, ten years ago at this point. Um, do you, well, after you're able to get back in the lab and start working on that, do you have any plans for what you will do after you graduate? Will you kind of do some more um, wet lab projects, or do you have um, kind of any plans or long term vision? I will definitely. Um, I'm kind of looking for options. I would love it if I can find like the the half and half wet lab and computation, but I have a feeling that my employability is much more computational at this point. But we'll see if I can like come up with something really great in wet lab in my like last year of my PhD, because I'm probably going to graduate next spring. Um, I'd really like to try to do a postdoc in like somewhere other than the US, because I'm always looking at all these international students coming here. And I think that that ability to like travel somewhere else and like work in a new culture and is like really cool and like I think people are way like better people for doing it and obviously I've done all of my schooling within the American system so I would really love to um, do a postdoc somewhere maybe in Europe or in Asia and just like go live somewhere else it's, it's a little bit like self-serving but also there's tons of cool research going on elsewhere and I've never had a chance to live anywhere other than here yeah that'd be really cool um do you see any um, large holes in the kind of tooling in, in our fields that aren't being kind of um, aren't being filled but that you know we don't necessarily have found someone who's just gonna take three years out and just mm. plug away at coding um, I'm trying to think I mean so it's not on the software side but on the, the biophysics side I think there's definitely a need for an update to the Turner and Santa Lucia models for DNA and RNA interactions. Um, they're, they're very good, but just based on kind of the results you see from RNA folding algorithms and from things like OxDNA, which uses Santa Lucia, like they're not quite right. They're, they're, so, they're very close, but th there's lots of like little things that I feel like somebody needs to go through and do like a very comprehensive look at DNA, RNA, dinucleotide interactions and just work more on the physics. 
because I, th I think there's a lot of possibility in the future that we're going to be able to come up with, I want this, draw it out, and then have like a very, have a, like a machine learning algorithm tell you why you're wrong or an algorithm that tells you why you're wrong. But in order to do that, I think we need more physical information. But it, it's kind of not, it's not a shiny prize to go for. It's not something that's going to get you published in science to come up with a fresh set of biophysical parameters. And it's also like really like thankless hard work to try every single iteration. So I understand why it's not been done, but I would really like some more data points. Do you think that's something that like DNA nanotech or just nucleic acid nanotech has been helping with since now there are more people who are interested in that as opposed to before, like for just for DNA, DNA, RNA, RNA, like biologists would like care about that a lot more. Yeah, so that, that would actually be really cool is if um, if somebody finds like a nanotech way to multiplex this more than we currently have. Um, so maybe, maybe there's like a nanotech solution that will solve the problem of making this really tedious and there, there's a there's an elegant way to do it with nanotech and also yeah i think you're right that having lots of people involved will make the like pressure to do something like this a little bit higher do you think we should have some kind of jury duty system where um researchers have to spend two years or, or so like kind of doing this foundational groundwork i think yeah so foundational groundwork and also um like verifying and iterating on structural things that people have come up with in the past because a lot of people will publish a structure and it like works beautifully for them and then like you try to order their sequences and make the same structure and it like doesn't quite work and so i would really love it if there was more of a library of um like protocols of how do you make this structure work um how do we and like that's what i'm looking for we, we want like better ways to reuse structures into the future. I think something's very important for DNA and RNA nanotech. So something that our lab is working on is a like database of designed and confirmed structures. And we're going to try to get as many design files as we can. So you can like look at people's cat nano files and um, as well as we'll have the OxDNA output. So you can just run simulations from there and OxDNA's got editing tools. So you could edit like freeform in there. And so our goal is to make it a little bit more democratized in terms of like what structures you have access to and hopefully more things will be like reusable so we can keep iterating on designs and like I, I think one problem with getting DNA nanotech into like application space is just getting it cheap enough to produce on a mass scale and like consistent enough because you often see designs that have you know like a two percent yield or something and like the design's really cool but is your yield good enough to actually be usable or because there's a lot of lot of waste there so you, we really need in addition to like the cheap dna synthesis that you're getting to it's really it's getting really cheap but we also need that that like consistency of design and production to really take this to the next level in terms of like having dna nanotech i don't know because you order like a dna nanotech sensor of some sort from thermo fisher like that that's that's when i think we'll have made it so is the idea to start with to build something similar to like the protein data bank, but for DNA structures? Yeah, so that's kind of where we're going. And our the big thing that a lot of like a lot of papers just give you the sequences. Um, so we're really trying to encourage groups to upload their structures um, as the design files so that people can actually see what's like what their thought process was when they were making this, as well as like map those sequences onto the design. PDB is definitely our inspiration. Cool. How many times have you copied uh, CAD Nano or whatever structures just off of uh, screenshots from supplementary material? I have never done that. I know other people in my lab have definitely done that. Um, Misha actually has a neat little tool that takes somebody's like sequence list um, and then tries to assemble the 3D structure from it. It's one of those things that it's really hard to get right, but sometimes it works and it saves you a lot of time. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, it's really exciting. Like, just, just like one more question on like the database side of things. Like, because the field is constantly evolving, like there are new things that people start caring about. Like, for example, now like maybe one of the parameter fields you'd be including is something like yield. But uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, even two years down the line, there will be something else equivalent that people care a lot about. So have you thought much in that direction in terms of like standardizing, like? an ever-evolving field? 
That's a very good point. So right now, kind of, we have very open-ended like tagging systems in our database in a, its current implementation. Um, I'll say that the database will hopefully be up like and running in the next couple of months. We just got the machine to like host it on yesterday. Um, but yeah, so one thing that we're really looking at is how do we keep this open-ended so that you can tag something as like high yield structure maybe. Um, and then you can search on existing tags rather than like forcing people to fill out lots and lots of like form fields. Just let people say what they think is important about their structure and then make sure that you give them that drop down menu. So when you start typing something, you see what other people have tagged. So it's all shows up at the same place. Yeah, I'm really excited to see this come out, especially so soon. Is yield something that Oxygen can predict at the moment? Uh, no. So anything that involves assembly is not a process that simulations can process. Because think about when you when you run a sim when you like anneal a nanostructure that took you hours and temperature ramping. Um, and simulations have a really hard time changing temperature. And also the timescales that they are investigating is really on the order of microseconds to maybe seconds. So you can't assemble something in a simulation unless you force it. Um, now I will say that the best, um, the best indication I've found for whether or not something will assemble in good yield in a, from an oxygen simulation is you start it from the expected design and you let it run the simulation and you'll occasionally see like pieces of the structure fall apart. And those are sections where the yield will be really poor. And I've definitely seen this in my own research with the RNA structures. Um, if I run an oxygen simulation and the structure holds together and I go take it in the lab, assemble the structure, run a gel, one band, nice. If I um, run the oxygen simulation and I see like a duplex falling apart or um, like especially things that are just like unstable, something like strands displaces another part of the structure that I wasn't expecting to happen, go run that in the lab, I'll see like a smear, like multiple bands on my gel. And so it's like these simulations are probably pretty accurate at telling you like things that aren't stable. So um, on oxygendna.org, when you run a simulation there, there's an automatic analysis for bond occupancy. I found that that is like probably the most useful tool for telling you whether or not something is actually going to assemble. Because what that does is it compares the bond occupancy over the length of the simulation with what it was in that first step when you, you know, put something in the way you intended it to be. Are there any ways of integrating Gox DNA with like multi-resolution uh, modeling approaches, kind of like what Mr. DNA does? Um, I know we talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, we're doing some work on the like more coarse grained. I would say that Mr. DNA is a little bit better as far as like actually transitioning from timescales. Uh, the, the, the like different resolutions, something that OxyDNA will probably be working on in the future, but it currently um, only really exists for proteins. And then it's not like the proteins have multiple resolutions. It's just a different resolution than the, than the DNA is. Thank you so much for joining us, Eric. Eric, Rahim, and Misha will be giving an OxDNA tutorial at the FNanoProcess session, so make sure not to miss that. Eric has also provided a bunch of links in the show notes below that are worth checking out. Stay tuned for our next episode with Kate Adamala in three weeks' time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>